Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Everyone wants to say that they have a revenue operations team these days. It's trendy, right? Companies that didn't have the function in recent years are suddenly scrambling to get on board this wave and staff up with the hot new thing that is RevOps. So where does that leave the market? What are the ripple effects on both hiring managers and the candidates for RevOps and sales ops roles themselves? To answer these questions, I turn to someone who isn't new to this trendy movement, but rather someone who has worked in operations for more than a decade. My guest today is Anu Krishna Kumar. Anu is the Senior Vice President of Global Sales Operations, Enablement, and Development at SmartBear. SmartBear is a provider of software development tools built to streamline your DevOps processes. And over the course of his nine-year tenure at SmartBear, Anu has risen through the ranks from account executive to customer success to biz ops and beyond. In our conversation, we talk about the mistakes that he sees companies making as they're trying to hire for these ops positions. We break down the real ramp times of new operations hires on your team, and we even dip our toe in the water on a potential alternative to your staffing woes, hiring offshore. But let's start at the beginning. With operations roles in vogue, what's a new seeing in the job market? What you see in the market is uh, companies that are Companies that typically would not have hired an operations uh, person is now sales ops or marketing ops or whatever uh, feels the urge to have an uh, you know operation their first sales ops first revenue ops person uh, which is great it's it's good for all of us it's good for the market uh, but I think there is not a lot of thought that has gone into the role right like uh, most of them is like oh mm. no no we I've spoken to many sales leaders uh, and other you know people who are hiring for these roles and they're like, no, 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 we, we are at a size where we need a sales ops, rev ops person. I'm like, oh, okay, what challenges are you guys trying to solve? And they're like, no, 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 we just have so much work. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, and I think that is an interesting dynamic, right? Obviously there's a lot of money in the market. Uh, I mean, it seems like we're slightly cooling off now, but we'll see. But uh, at least as of now, there's a lot of money in the market. People want to maximize the revenue. And uh, if you look at lots of VCs and PE firms, they are pushing for these roles, right? They feel like that visibility is very important, which is great. Uh, I think, but then it comes with it, like there's not a whole lot of clarity around what people are looking for in, in these roles. And on the other end, for people like us who manage teams, uh, we have, you know, teams churning, you know, because they're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, when am I ever going to become a director or VP or whatever? That, you know, that company is offering me that job right now, as opposed to a year or two years now, you know, from now. And I think the challenge with that is uh, they are also not factoring in that, you know, what is the job going to be? Is there going to be any different? Are I, am I going to be in like just managing chaos every day, right? Uh, and I think on both sides, I think there's a lot of urgency, but I don't think there's a lot of thought that goes into this planning. Um, I think that's an interesting so, dynamic. For sure. And I want to make sure we come back to the candidate side of that a little later. To start, though, like you started to mention in some of the conversations you're having with people, if they are going to slow down a little bit and actually mm -hmm. be more thoughtful mm -hmm. rather than just like, you know, it seems to be the in vogue thing to do is to hire right. off people. Like, yeah. what is the guidance that you're giving people and what is the stuff that you do internally yeah. to be more thoughtful about, you know, 
how do you get the most out of that next incremental hire inside yeah. of an operations team? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I've been speaking to a few sales leaders outside who've been asking me for input on like, hey, uh, we think we need a sales ops person. And this is what I tell them, right? Um, you know, don't, first of all, don't come to the conclusion because, you know, your manager said so, whether it's the CEO, whoever, or the board, uh, think about what problems you're trying to solve are most, especially if you're a smaller company, uh, you know, if revenue generation is a challenge, right? You know, is that where you want to invest your uh, money in? And okay, you've made the decision, then the kind of talent you want to look for uh, is not, you know, I think many people are also confused. I'm sure you would understand and appreciate this. Uh, the distinction between sales ops and Salesforce admins and anal uh, analysts, it's all kind of mi mixed and confused, right? You know, decide what kind of person you want. Are you looking for someone who would manage your Salesforce? That's an entirely different hire than a sales ops person who's going to be a, a strategic uh, part of your organization, right? And if that's what you've determined you want, then the kind of people you, the candidate they should look for is someone who is who has an entrepreneurial mindset, who's a problem solver at their core, right? Who's ready to you know jump in, identify challenges, uh, talk to the stakeholders, and willing and ready to look at the world besides just the I don't know Excel report, Excel sheet and Salesforce reports, right? Uh, oh yeah, we are. I've I've seen it's very common for people to get caught up in. Oh, this is what the number is telling me. So this is what I think we should do, right? As opposed to understanding what the business needs and you know what the solution should look like, and truly become a partner, right? That's the kind of person they should look for, and they typically are, again, like I said, problem solver at the core and have an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and on the other hand, you know, for people like us who are trying, to, who are managing a team, and we want to expand, and you get that precious budget to go hire that additional head. Right, and where do you, what kind of person you look for, and that is heavily dependent on the maturity of the organization itself. By organization, I mean the sales ops organization itself. How are you either measuring or plotting where you might be on that maturity spectrum? Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll give this example, right? So let's say uh, this organization has a VP of revenue ops, sales ops, and okay. right, and they're going to hire the first person, you know, the, uh, the next the first IC in the organization. And that person should be everything that I just described, right? They have to have an entrepreneurial mindset, problem solver. Uh, they're willing to talk to people, you know, not just getting, you know, uh, hidden behind, a, getting hiding behind a uh, monitor, right? Uh, and that would be the ideal first hire you have, right? And, uh, but then let's say you're at a maturity level where you have like five sales ops people already, right? Uh, let's assume that all the, title or analyst. You're trying to hire the sixth person. Now you need to evaluate what is this. It's not just about putting something in the job description that looks fancy and attractive to a candidate. What is this person actually going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Do we Is 60% of the job going to be account assignments and data cleanup and data hygiene, right? Then have that in mind. Don't go hire someone with five years of experience who is going to get bored two weeks into the job. Right. Yeah. Uh, and or, hey, you know, we have a lot of talent that does really good Excel Salesforce work, works with the managers. We need someone who can, you know, bring the, B, you know, a BI uh, factor into this, someone who can do Power BI Tableau. 
Okay, now go hire that talent, right? And again, it is heavily, and you see this very often in organizations, they're all just so happy that they got the budget and they're like, oh yeah, let's use the same job <laughs> description that we used, you know, three yeah, years ago. Copy, right? paste, and post copy, it. Exactly. Too much trouble, I agree. I hate doing it, but still. Um, but I think just truly knowing what this person is going to be doing. And when we think about, you know, hiring our next head, we think about, okay, what all the people here do? And where do we have the overflow work? Our work, we think that the current resources are going to get bored of doing, right? And I'm mm. sure we all can appreciate in sales ops especially, there is this uh, extremely crucial and terribly boring part of the job, you know, that where's a lot of the admin work and, you know, managing and moving accounts and all that, that someone needs to do, but no one really wants to do it, right? And, you know, usually gets spread around in the team, but once your team matures and people are progressing, they want to come out of it. They want to start doing more strategic, interesting, important stuff. And your next hire needs to be, that needs to be factored in. Okay, the, some of this stuff is going to go there. So what kind of candidate we want to bring in? So with everyone clamoring to add RevOps or sales ops into their organization, Anu has identified a few common pitfalls that we should be on the lookout for. First, people aren't clearly defining the roles that they want. They're mashing together a whole bunch of different roles at once. Second, he's been able to put a spotlight on the traits that hiring managers should be looking for in these ops hires. He talked about having an entrepreneurial mindset, being a problem solver, and being the strategic partner to your internal stakeholders. And third, he's recognized that with each incremental hire you make, you have the opportunity to remove some of the less sexy, day-to-day -day mundane tasks from your existing team. This is going to be critical in a growing ops team. And so it begs the question, how should leaders think about the life cycle of operators within their teams? It all sounds good in theory. And of course, everyone wants to grow in their careers. But what does that path actually look like? Thankfully, we have had a pretty good, stable team. We haven't had to uh, bring too many new people. Um, but it is a fun time, right? Like it takes, uh, we talk about, um, you know, our sales enablement team deals with, uh, you know, our new hires we have and, you know, every part of the sales organization, certainly the AEs is something that we are constantly expanding and hiring. Uh, and you, you know, we have all these ramp times and ramp times are always just indicative, right? So you say three months, four months, you know, it's depending upon uh, person to person. But in a sales ops organization, revenue, of organ revenue ops organization, it's especially complicated because it's not just someone learning how to do the job. They actually have to learn so much or absorb so much of the organizational knowledge, mm. right? Oh, you know, some change that was made three years ago has an impact on something we do now, right? Or, uh, oh, yeah, you know, do you remember that one time we had to make an exception and do this, this, and that? And that's why... This is not normal, right? And, and all these things need to be imported on someone, right? And I think over the years, we've gotten very good at documentation. And, you know, and typically the people that we bring in, we, they were usually interns, and then so they have some knowledge of it. But it's a massive challenge uh, ramping them up. And what I have seen is the first three months, you know, they really add no value at all, right? They're just... Uh, and hopefully, if they have all the basic skill sets, you're just teaching them the organizational knowledge. Mm. But, you know, usually what they tell us is, oh, two months in the organization, they feel like very comfortable and confident. And then they just hit a roadblock about something that's a total exception. Uh, and it takes about six months for them to really start 
contributing, right? That's when they really start adding value. And for someone to get actually good and they can kind of essentially get fully hands off, it's about a year, right? And that's where I think we talk about all this hiring and churn and everything. And that's where the biggest challenge happens. You lose them at that one year mark. I, I don't think you've done yourself any favors, right? You could right. have probably gone without having that resource at all. You just wasted all your time in training someone. Um, so yeah, I, so I feel like, you know, I think it matters in every single role, but in, in any operations role, it's all the more important you have better stickiness in the job. The, the institutional knowledge stuff is no joke. We, we just did an, a, an exercise this week where we were doing an audit of a whole bunch of pretty old fields in our different systems, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Don't sure. get too excited. Yeah. I knew. I know yeah. this is this is some sexy stuff. <laughs> right, <But> right. <laughs> we we were going through this, and you know, uh, for most of the people on my team, they were looking. Okay, this is things we can cut. This is stuff we can cut. This is stuff mm -hmm. we can eliminate. And I have to be the one who has to have the institutional knowledge to say, this right. is the context of why we did this thing yeah. three years ago. This was the partnership that brought it about. And this is the reason why that data might still be helpful to us. Right. But it's also to your point, like whether it's through documentation or whether it's through other means of memorializing that information, we have to do a better job to make that ramp time faster. But yeah. regardless of how good you are at that, at that documentation stuff, if you lose somebody after a year, if yeah. they've got that great documentation the whole time, it doesn't matter. You still lost them after a year. Right, right. And who's going to, someone has to read the documentation. Nobody wants to read the documentation Correct. ultimately, right? And Correct. I, 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 completely, I completely agree. And what you're saying, the feels is a perfect example. It's something that seems so simple and silly. And then, you know, someone who's new to the organization, even that person who spent a year in, in your organization would be like, oh, we don't need these 20 fields. Who uses that anymore? And then you have to come, no, 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 don't cut it. You know, Please. You can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, no, that's, it can be understated. These ramp times from Anu are a good reality check. Two to three months where you're basically feeling your way through the dark, six months to kind of know what you're doing, and a full year to be a needle-moving, contributing member of the team. So what then, if you're listening to this and you find yourself in the midst of this ramp period or you're feeling as though you've hit a wall in your own growth, how should you assess either the opportunity you have or the opportunities that are being presented to you by a different company. A news take is not about titles or loyalty or even institutional knowledge lost or gained. It's about what he's been talking about all along, the core purpose of the role itself. What I try to tell people now is do not take an opportunity just because it is a you know bigger title than what you have now, right? Or you're going to be working for someone with a bigger title, right? With it matters in any role, certain, some roles more than others, right? For example, if someone is going to be, let's say, in a, we all work in sales teams. If, you are, if you're a sales rep, you're going to be a sales rep for the next 10, 15 years, let's say, you've determined that. Does it really matter? You go to a company and, okay, you hang around for a year, year and a half, and then you jump, go somewhere else and do the same, you know, increasing your uh, comp every single time. Probably doesn't hurt your career that much, right? But in a sales ops role, you do that, right? Uh, any ops role, you're probably not going to go down and, you know, no one's going to hire you for a leadership role, right? Or people are going to be very wary because, like I said, the ramp times are so high. No one wants to hire someone who would jump ship in a year or a year and a half, right? It's too much investment. Um, so it's important when people consider those roles 
uh, and especially if they're happy where they are, or, you know, if they're not, uh, if they don't feel the compulsion to to not take jobs just for uh, a minor comp bump or a title bump, right? It's better to first discuss with their uh, manager, uh, you know, whoever they report to, like what is their career path. And I hope, hopefully, the companies, uh, you know, especially in a market like this, they take this more seriously and discuss that more proactively. Yeah. Uh, but it's. I think some of, and also if you say, okay, great, hey, this is a, I've done the research, it's a significant comp bump, it's a good title, they have a plan, then the next thing to think about is, uh, okay, do they know what this role is going to be? Or do they expect you to figure it out? I think you're, you're starting to hit on, you know, a concrete list of things. Yeah. that someone can actually take away from this to consider, right? Like right. recognizing you and I's own biases here, like <laughs> yeah. you've been at Smart Bear for nine years and I've been right. adrift for four and a half, right? And yeah. so like, we're, we're probably a little biased on, right. on how we think about this. <laughs> yeah. But I also think that what you're starting to provide is like this concrete list of, okay, if you are going to assess an opportunity, and I think yeah. assessing opportunities uh, on a, on a semi-regular basis is, is healthy. Yeah. Um, then how do you do that? Right. And yeah. so you mentioned making sure the role is real and, yeah. and, uh, you know, properly scoped. What else would you encourage people to look for? Yeah. I think who they're going to work for, but I don't mean yeah. so much as what title they, they're going to be reporting into, right? What, what is their experience? What can they hope to learn from them? Right. Um, and I think most people in sales ops role, especially if someone, they've always been working for, let's say, some, for someone like you and me, and they're going to go directly and work for a sales leader. It's very important to see what level of appetite the sales leader has with uh, ops, right? Are they just mm -hmm. hiring someone because their CEO asked them to and they have no interest in analytics or ops? That would be a rough transition for someone who's always works for an ops leader, right? And that's important to consider. And I think the another thing that, absolutely in this market goes uh you know goes under is the, the stability of the company itself right yeah you'd see i know of people i'm sure you know of people who you know move to this other company because they get this big title bump and then they realize that there's like seven other people in the company and that's it and you don't know when they're going to get the next funding right yeah uh, no amount of comp bump is material <laughs> If you yeah. don't, if you're not going to see your next paycheck in six months, right? Uh, yeah. And I think, like you said, you and I are absolutely, we have been in the same company for uh, for a long time and that's not the norm. Uh, but what shouldn't be a norm is people jumping every year or year and a half, right? And that's just yeah. not good for anyone involved. And I think even too, like if we don't look at it from from a leader or a hiring manager's perspective, like the time and investment that you put into learning these systems, right? Yeah. Like to your point about six months to get pretty good, a year to to really be able to, you know, stretch your legs in, in a new role and understand the systems, like that's real, right? Yeah. And so your ability to then make a needle moving impact on the business, if that's your motivation for your role, you're gonna yeah. need that amount of time, I think, to, to make that work. The only way that I've seen people accelerate that, and, and we've had great success with this at Drift, and, and I would strongly recommend it to both leaders and, and individuals who are, who are thinking about this is internal transitions. Yeah. We've had folks that come from sales roles, from finance roles, who, to your point, understand the, the role that the, the ops team has carved out within the organization and then thought about 
does that match my own career growth goals? And you skip over all of the company learning, the institutional knowledge, or at least a good chunk of it to yeah. be able to be a contributing member of the team much, much faster. So, so I think that's the only real shortcut um, to that to that year long trajectory that that I've seen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, you and I have had, you know, similar transitions, right? I didn't start in sales ops out of college, right? We all were in sales in some capacity and we moved into sales ops role. And I, you're absolutely right. That's a good, successful transition. And but again, you know, going back to just the transition, the time itself, right? And, you know, I, I think I believe you're hiring for a leadership role in your team, right? And, uh, and you know, if when I, I have to do it again, I would you know, we all look at the resumes and the first thing you look at is like all the transitions they have had between roles mm -hmm. or between companies, right? How often do you take someone seriously when someone has, you know, moved around like four times in the last five years of their career, right? Uh, and I think that's something that lots of people, you know, straight out of school don't realize how important uh, that tends to be later in their career, uh, right? And also, like you said, the, especially the transition time and, I would think if someone wants to be in sales ops, it's a really good, uh, there are really good career paths, right? And it's, it's as long as you make the right move, you give it enough time and, uh, you know, be thoughtful in the move that you make. Uh, there's lots of opportunities these days. Look, there's no perfect career path. And I meant what I said about bias. The career advice you hear from anyone is going to be given through the lens of their own experiences. But I think that if you take a news building blocks here, you assess the core of the role you're looking at, who it reports to, who you can learn from, and you compare those to the opportunities within your current role, that's a recipe for a decision that you'll be able to stand behind 6, 12, 18 months later. For me, I ask myself three questions about any role I've ever had. Am I learning? Am I being challenged? And am I building something? Now, those are my questions and everyone needs to figure out their own. But if I can answer yes to all three of those, I'm fulfilled in my job. Okay, back to Anu. One of the reasons I wanted to chat with Anu is that in addition to these observations he's made about the market, he's also been exploring an alternative staffing solution. And he's been exploring it for precisely the reasons that we've been talking about. Long ramp times, employee turnover, and most importantly, wanting to provide growth opportunities for the top performers already on his team today. And that alternative staffing solution is seeking staffing options offshore. To be clear, this isn't an alternative to having strong career paths for your team members. On the contrary, Anu says that maintaining those career paths is actually a catalyst for this offshore staffing solution. Now, this is the first guest we've had who's talked about going down this offshore path. So I wanted to learn as much as I could about a new and smart bears approach here and how they landed on this option. I think our thought process now is you're going to need this again, a certain pool of money to go around, right? And you want to make sure that you maximize that on people uh, who are absolutely impactful, the people who have the organizational knowledge, people, you know, every other skill that we talked about, right? So you want to make sure that you have these strong candidates locally, wherever your primary location is. And then you want to think about as, you, as the team expands, uh, at least the way we are thinking about it now is as the team expands, we want to put these additional resources uh, in offshore locations, right? And I think the thought process came from, 
you know, you see development organizations, it's very common, right? And and I see in larger organizations where many organizations have this 30-70 split where 30% of their um, organization, you know, the you know non-revenue generating resources uh, sits in an expensive or the local location, and then there's 70% sits in an offshore, uh, you know, less expensive uh, location. And the advantage that I see with a model like that is you get to keep your, you know, strong strategic a part of your uh, team happy. And, you know, I think the career paths are great, but if it's not accompanied by additional money, no one cares about title after a point, right? Mm. Uh, and it's not just something that you have in a PowerPoint slide. So if people want to have that career path, so you now start investing on these resources and you obviously need someone, uh, you know, as you start to expand all this admin work and fun stuff that we talked about, and that goes to the offshore location, right? And another advantage beyond just, you know, uh, the cost, the challenge I have noticed is increasingly in the States, uh, you could hire someone straight out of school you know, and you could, you know, give all this organizational knowledge, they're doing all the admin work and all that. And six months into the job, they're like, they want, they want more, they want more everything, right? And mm. I, I'm sure you can remember this too. Like when I started, I was probably doing the same thing for like two years. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you don't even, there was no other option. And now people are getting bored and there are opportunities. So they could simply jump ship in like eight months. So, and that's, or you are just, it's, uh, completely unaffordable. You're just giving, you start someone at like, I don't know, whatever number, and then you, you have two X their salary in less than, uh, less than two years. Right. And that's just not sustainable. Uh, but in offshore lo locations, those, that money could go uh, much further. Right. And you could keep them happy uh, and keep the retain that organizational knowledge uh, without, you know, without going crazy on your budget. So, so I think I understand kind of like the catalyst for this mm -hmm. idea, right? And mm -hmm. I think people listening can put themselves in that, in that same position and they probably are seeing and feeling the same things within their own organizations. Once you have kind of that seed of an idea of, hmm, maybe there's an offshore solution to this particular problem, like mm -hmm. what next? Like what do you even do to start to assess the viability of that potential option? Yeah, no, that's that's a very good question, and I I think it's very important to note that the thirty seventy model, right? The thirty percent has to be here, and you Got need it. to have strong managers, leaders, right? Uh, just or even ICs uh, in your core location, uh, and you know it wouldn't work for a company, and and I wouldn't definitely not recommend it. Oh, you're gonna put your first sales ops person who's like in a different times, twelve hours away from you? No, no, don't do that. That would be a disaster, mm. right? Uh, but on the other hand, if you have a core team that is strong and you've identified good leaders or at least people who would potentially be leaders who can mentor the people you're going to be hiring offshore, then that becomes a viable option. So now, as long as your team, the core team is strong, now you, again, no different than what I said before, you got to identify uh, what you are, what kind of work we need done in an offshore location, right? Or what kind of work we need done, first of all. Uh, and how much of that can realistically go to an offshore location? There is obviously the uh, challenges of time zones and uh, sometimes language or the ability to communicate directly with stakeholders. All of that is involved. So what portion of the shop, 
job or the role can be shipped offshore? And do you have strong resources in your core location that can ramp them up, mentor them, and even support or manage them in in the beginning? Over time, we would start to, uh, our expectation is we'd start to develop a leadership team, even the offshore, right? So the mentorship and at least the day-to-day management doesn't have to be done out of the code location, right? Uh, Again, you know, a lot of this is theoretical. You know, we are exploring our options. We have to, you know, maybe I'll come back in a couple of years and tell you how it worked or didn't work. But uh, (laughs) lots of companies have done this, much larger organizations with, you know, tens and hundreds of uh, operations people do this now and they're able to execute it successfully. I don't see any reason smaller organizations cannot. So so leadership starts local. You ramp up offshore location and then you eventually develop leadership in in, in market. Is that fair? Correct. In terms of yep. like steps Perfect. here? Yeah. If we're, you know, you and I are both in Boston. Mm-hmm. And so let's consider for the sake of argument, uh, North America to be mm-hmm. local. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, and everywhere else to be offshore. Right. Uh, that's a big offshore. To, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> do, have you made it to the point yet where you have selected what offshore means for you? And how did you arrive at that decision? Uh, well, I think uh, in my mind, when I'm thinking of offshore, at least uh, for Smart Bear, I'm thinking of places like India or Poland and uh you know, maybe some other uh, Southern European countries, right, where we already have office locations. Got uh, it. Obviously, different organizations have different appetite for, you know, going absolutely nuts with this, uh, you know, different countries, right? They don't, uh, a company that is completely uh, remote and is open to working anywhere might have more options. Uh, but also, uh, when you're thinking, if you, you know, if you're thinking outside North America, you could be in Canada or UK, you're probably not, oh, sorry, well, Sorry, Canada is included in North America. If you're going to, I don't know, UK, for example, you're not really doing yourself any favor by you sure. know, cutting down on the cost, right? So, uh, and from what I see with other organizations too, usually uh, Poland is coming up as like a really strong place for offshore hires for roles like this. Uh, India always has been obviously a more competitive market. Uh, and then now lots of Southern European countries are popping up too. Uh, there are good tax benefits there. So you see lots of good talent moving there. So that's a good place to hire. Uh, and I think the advantage most companies would see with Europe is the time difference. Uh, but again, it would be slightly more expensive than some of the locations in APAC or you know, uh, particularly more Asia. Um, and I, I think the for us, at least, uh, because we have offices in India and Poland, it becomes a more viable option. Uh, yeah. Again, we haven't done a more detailed talent analysis to see what, what kind of talent we'll be able to find, but um, but that's what we are primarily thinking of. So if you're considering an offshore staffing path, Anu and his team have started by first identifying which roles and functions you want to consider. He also has this general guideline of a 30-70 split with 30% in the local more expensive location. Now, hearing for this for the first time, 70% of the team being offshore sounds like a lot. So how does Anu and his team think about standing up a team offshore and making sure that they have the support that they need? We had someone in our team uh, move from our North American location to our location in Europe, uh, you know, just more to, you know, we're trying to put more resources in as many places where we have offices as possible. Uh, and 
you know, in those cases, obviously it becomes much easier. Now you have someone in that zone, right, in that time zone, and you start to hire more people. Now it's easier for them to start to ramp up people in that location. Uh, but you're not going to have people ready to move to Poland or India, you know, uh, from North America that, that often. Uh, but if you don't, then the most important thing is like, okay, are there parts of the job? And we know this when you're planning, there's so much more work going into the data cleanup, identifying accounts and just grouping them and all, all that sort of fun stuff than the actual planning itself. And a lot of that could be managed offshore. And as long as someone has experience with the tools like Salesforce or Excel or whatever, uh, that's a much easier place to ramp up on, right? So, and then over time, you can start to, as throughout the process, you can start to impart some of that other organizational knowledge. So if I'm, if I'm trying to play devil's advocate here and I'm trying mm-hmm. to take the other side of this argument, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that would give me pause about mm-hmm. this strategy would be the amount of time and investment in the documentation, the process, the training that you would probably need upfront in order mm-hmm. to pull this off. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think about that particular challenge, particularly during the transition time? Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I think it is definitely, it's not as, it's obviously easier to hire someone, you know, who sits right next to you, right? Or at least uh, in the remote environment, so in the same time zone. Um, But if if you know, hey, we are not going to be hiring, you know, another person for the next, I don't know, whatever we call it, five years, seven years or whatever, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Then probably it's not worth going to this model, right? On the other hand, if you know that hey, this is going there's going to be a lot of expansion. You know there is you know you know you want to have a sustainable team, then the initial effort would be worth it, right? The first hire offshore is obviously going to be the hardest because that's where we are. Lots of trial and error are going, and like you said, the documentation mm. and all of that. But once you have the first person, the second and third becomes exponentially easier, right? Uh, and again, this is all built around the uh, belief, and obviously there has to be enough research to say, okay, we have, we know we're going to need, I don't know, four more people over the next two, three years, right? And it's not realistic or sustainable to do that in the core location. Now you, you know, prepare yourself for this grind of getting that one person ramped up first. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. It's more about the trade-off of the short-term pain versus the long-term benefits that we're going to get. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Um, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, of a, I think, highly functioning team. I, I'm probably butchering the name. Uh, I loved it. It's such a fun read. It's a short book. Uh, it's, it's about, uh, you know, they take this fictional scenario and talk about uh, all the things that could go wrong in a team and how you avoid it. And uh, it's, yeah, it's one of the most fun, uh, you know, not fully fictional books that I've read in recent memory. Uh, Love it. Uh, your favorite part about working in ops? Um, new problems every day. <laughs> Flip side, maybe it's the same answer. <laughs> Least favorite part about working in ops? Well, I guess the, I guess you answered the question. Yes, new problems every day. I, I want I want to break sometimes. So, 
someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today? Um, oh, lots of people. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to leave anyone out, but, uh, pretty much every manager I've ever had. Got it. And, uh, last one, one piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Be patient, know what you really want and think about what your next, not your next job, but the job after that should be. Thanks so much to Anu for being our guest on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you are subscribed to our show. A new episode comes out every other Friday. And if you learned something from Anu today or from any of our episodes, make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews really help other folks to find our show. Six star reviews only. All right, that's gonna do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.